Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. All right, today on the show, we're going to explore what may be an antidote to striving or trying too hard in meditation. It's a common problem. I've struggled with it very much, uh, still do today. This approach is something called natural awareness, and it has been incredibly helpful for me. Uh, But that's not all we're going to do on the show today. Uh, Our guest, the same guest who's going to talk about natural awareness, is also going to tell an incredible personal story about going from the Ivy League to shaving her head and becoming a nun. The guest, her name is Diana Winston. She did not, it's worth saying, stay a nun forever. She's now out here in the real world. She's the director of mindfulness education at UCLA's Semmel Institute's Mindful Awareness Research Center. Uh, She's been called by the LA Times, quote, one of the nation's best known teachers of mindfulness. And that is true. She has taught mindfulness since the 90s in hospitals, universities, corporations, nonprofits, schools, uh, both here in the U.S. and in Asia and online. And she's now one of our new teachers on the 10% Happier app. And she has a new book called The Little Book of Being, Practices and Guidance for Uncovering Your Natural Awareness. This is a a fascinating conversation. I loved it. Uh, We're going to start with the riveting story of how she went from the Ivy League to a shaved head nun in Burma and how that led her to emphasize a part of meditation practice about which many beginners don't often hear, and it's called natural awareness, and I think it's incredibly useful. Then we're going to talk about a huge issue for many of you, many listeners, how to bring meditation into parenting. Diana has a nine-year-old daughter, and she has great insights about meditation and parenting and the limits of the former as it as it comes to as it pertains to the latter. And then we're going to talk about a big problem facing the mindfulness world, which is a lack of qualified teachers and what do you do as a meditator if you want to find a teacher. And finally, we're going to take your voicemails together. Before we dive in one related item of business, this week we are adding you may have noticed this, we're adding some bonus content into the podcast feed, so we posted two things. Uh, The bonus content is a brief talk directly from Diana Winston. It's called Just This. This talk comes from the new talks section on the 10% Happier app. We're super excited about this new feature on the app. Uh, It it essentially consists of short talks that are designed to be little zaps of wisdom that you can access when you don't have time to meditate. You're walking to work, you're brushing your teeth, uh, often the time when you might be listening to podcasts. So check out Diana's new talk in your podcast feed. There's also a link to the talk within the show notes. Uh, by the way, Diana has uh, other great talks and guided meditations on the 10% Happier app. Another talk from her actually launched today in the app, and it's called Kitchen Cabinet Mindfulness. All righty, enough for me. Here is Diana. Great to see you. Thanks. Great to be here. I didn't know, uh, even though we've met before, that you were a nun at one point, a Buddhist nun. So... I'm just curious, how did you get into meditation in the first place, and how did it get so far as, in a good sense, as that yeah, it, that you became a nun? Okay, so um, back when I was a child, I had um, a family that was kind of, it was the 1970s, and they were really into alternative Eastern spirituality, right? So it wasn't, I wasn't that into it. I mean, I was, you know how kids obviously rebel against their parents, so... At one point, my mom got us a TM mantra when we were, 
I was nine, I think, and my brother was six. And so this is a true story that, you know, if you get a Tia Mantra, you're told whatever you do, you may not tell a single person about it. <laughs> so my cousin, who's a little bit older than us, really wanted to know. And my brother sold his mantra for a Hot Wheels car. <laughs> so I had this kind of in my growing up, right, this interest in not maybe meditation per se, but in more like Eastern thought, right? Um, and then after college, I ended up um, – well, I had some experiences as a child, which were kind of meditative experiences that I didn't really recognize. And But they were amazing, you know, like like experiences. The one that I, th- I think I wrote about was about being about ten, 14 years old and lying in this field and suddenly having this sense of like great – vast love overcome me. Mm. And I was, you know, it's a teenager. And I was like, what is this? And I was thinking, okay, I've got it. I must hate somebody. This I can't be loving everybody. I must hate somebody. So I thought about this one kid that I really hated and I couldn't even feel hate for him. <laughs> and it was just like this, this like depth of connection. But then it was, then it was sort of, that was about it. And, um, and then in my, after college, I was traveling in Asia, and it was kind of an interesting time because it was the 80s, and pretty much everybody that I went to college with had gone to law school or business school. And so it was very weird that I was interested in going to, um, in going to Asia. But I, went, I, had, I had spent a semester abroad in Thailand when I was like a junior in college. So I went to, um, I went to India, and I was traveling around, and I ended up in Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama's government in exile, and I got involved with a activist group, and I was very political, and I was not into meditation at all, and um, and then I remember like everybody is meditating around you, and everybody's into it. It's the whole, it's the scene there, and so I ended up doing uh, like listening to teachings, and I was really skeptical, and I would sit in the back of the room with like these big bars of chocolate and open them up and crinkle, crinkle, <laughs> crinkle, and it was just really, I was rude. And and then something went, oh, go on a meditation retreat. Okay, so I'm, I'm like, I'm just out of college. I was pretty driven, like really very driven in school, always trying to get the A, get success, do, you know, do well, very, you know, just like a very type A kind of personality. And I, I sat in this meditation retreat, and I had this moment where they were giving a teaching about, um, you know, it's called the eight worldly winds or the eight, the, the eight changes in the world, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you probably, of course, know this, but yes, it's I like know. praise and praise and blame, yes, gain and loss, fame and dishonor, yes. and pleasure and pain. Yeah, I actually really love this concept because we get so – we. We take it personally when, you know, we're blamed, you know, we're in a moment where we're unpopular or something like just check your – if you're somebody who's a public figure, check your at replies on Twitter, for example. <laughs> or the flip side of that is maybe something nice happens and people tell you some nice things. But actually if you can view them like the wind, you know, these are the eight worldly winds in the Buddhist speak – uh, and they have a way of making things sound pretty grandiose. But if you just <laughs> look at it like the wind and you, then it depersonalizes, like, hey, this happens. This is just something that happens in every life. That's right. Yeah, that's – I mean, it's such an amazing teaching. And I heard it and it was it was the first – like there was this moment when I went, oh, my God, this explains my life. Like I'm running around seeking the good stuff trying and mostly praise, trying to get – 
people to love me, trying to get my teachers to think I'm a good student, whatever it was. And I was like seeking that one, running away from the other one and suffering a lot in the process. And I and then so I heard this and something clicked. And then there, she said, but there is a way out. And that is to meditate and this quality of equanimity that we can develop as we practice. And I heard that and I went, okay, I'm in. And so I was 22, 21, 22, jumped in and started meditating and within and stayed at the monastery there and practice, went to Thailand because I heard there were cheap meditation retreats, free <laughs> meditation retreats that you could do. So I went to Thailand in my first um, insight meditation retreat, Vipassana, with Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who was um, one of these amazing meditation masters. I was so lucky to have sat with him in the 80s before he died. And I just fell in love with it. And so from there, I when I was at the monastery practicing, and this was just like a 10-day retreat, they said, did you like it? But I, I met this nun, and she said, did you like it? And I said, yeah, I liked it. And she said, well, there's this place where you can do a three-month retreat in um, Massachusetts. And I said, I'll never do a three-month retreat. Are you kidding me? But I ended up a year later doing a three-month retreat. <laughs> at IMS, which was just a few hours from my home. Insight Meditation Society. Right. So um, so anyway, that was kind of the beginning of my practice. And because I was young and things were cheaper back then and you didn't have to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for rent and, you know, you could live as a I – just, I just practiced. And I spent a number of years in and out of meditation retreats and then – waitressing to make money so I could go on my next retreat. And then I got involved with um, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship for uh, many years. I was running a program for them, bringing um, activism and Buddhist practice together. So I'd moved out to Berkeley. So I still am not answering your question. But anyway, I got, I became, after 10 years, I had been practicing um, quite a bit with some of your teachers, Joseph Goldstein and and others at IMS, but I had also been a student of Sayadaw Pandita, who was the monk from Burma, who was very influential with our teachers. And um, he kept saying, come to Burma, come to Burma and become a nun. And I said, nah, like the same thing. I was like, no, no, no. And then, of course, I do it. Like I jump in. And um, so I spent, so in like the late 90s, I went to live in the monastery and I spent a year um, as a nun, thinking I would only go for six months, thinking that, okay, I should get everything I want to accomplish done in six months. What did you want to accomplish? <laughs> oh, I was wanting to get enlightened, of course. <laughs> I was I think, you know, the system that that um, this these teachings come out of make it sound as though, okay, enlightenment is this something. If you just do this, this, this enough, boom, enlightenment can happen. And I was I was driven. I was still like this very type A person, right? Trying to get trying to get my A, but this time I want to get my A in meditation. And I think, um, you know, I think I was attracted to the medit. I mean, I loved meditating. Like I was, it was the most amazing thing, uh, as many of us know. I mean, just noticing my mind and understanding it in the depth of insight and compassion and all that was arising. So I had wholesome, good med- good intentions, but I think I also was like, And now I've got to succeed at meditation, right? And I'm going to go to the like hardest place I could possibly go to with one of the, he was not like a warm and fuzzy guy. He was a pretty hardcore sort of dismissive, slightly mean teacher. 
but I wanted to get my A from him. You know, I was like really driven. So um, should I keep going into the story? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> okay. Um, so I went, I, you know, I got there, I started, I was practicing and this was like on the heels of many years of practice and, you know, to become a nun in that culture, like you can do it for, for a day, you can do it for a week, you can do it for a lifetime. It, there's no rule, there's no like minimum, you know, so I thought, okay, six months, that should be enough to get enlightened and then I'll go to the beaches in Thailand and relax and hang out. And, um, and then I got there and people had said, okay, this monastery is the place to practice. If you want to get enlightened, this is the place to go. And so I got there and it was under construction and it was like a disaster. It was, <laughs> it was so noisy. They had, you know, jackhammers and tons of people and so much noise and drill like all day long. So I'm meditating in the midst of that. And then I think, okay, it's nighttime. They're going to be quiet. And then they would pull out the guitars and start playing music all night because they lived on the on the property. The construction workers. The construction yeah. workers, yeah. And um, and it was like, you know, there were snakes and spiders and scorpions. And, like, it was insane. I'd never seen these, like, giant snakes and these, like, half-lizard snake creatures. And um, lizards and snakes. There is a name for it. I can't think of it. And mosquitoes and bugs and scorpions and centipedes and and then it was hot and i mean like really it was like you were meditating in a sauna for a year and then um it was the food i hated the food and i was always getting sick and so i was like really really unhappy but i was very driven and i still like i had to be there you know like i had to practice like there was something inside me that was so strong um so I practiced for the – I, I kind of got used to it. Like I got used to it. And, and Oh, and also just to say when you become a nun, you shave your head, you wear robes, and I you were supposed to give away your possessions. I just put them into storage. And <laughs> um, I and, – and you don't eat after 12 noon, which is fine at a certain point. You can't sleep in high or luxurious beds which wasn't an issue because they give you like a slab to sleep on. Um, so I so I was practicing and I spent, I spent, you know, I was working really, really hard, but I started getting like really overzealous, you know, and I started trying harder and harder and harder to achieve my goal, you know. And the more, and so I started imposing these like, really intense practices on myself like okay I'm only going to sleep a few hours a night I'm going to but I'm going to sleep sitting up I'm going to uh, meditate for hours and hours at a time without moving and you know I just started pushing and then this thing this thing whatever I thought enlightenment was and you know in I mean I've heard it talked about in your podcast it's talked about in different ways but for me I was waiting for some moment where everything would change and and I would be like free from suffering essentially and I would get, I just got more and more driven. And the more driven I got, I, well, you can imagine what happened. I just totally, totally fell apart. Well, the, 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 the great hindrance in meditation is desire. Right. Oh, I was, I had it in spades. <laughs> like I really. And I, no teacher said to you, I see this hindrance arising for you and you may want to back off. <sighs> No, they actually encouraged it quite a bit. I mean, it was a different cultural space and it was 
like they saw that strong energy of desire in me as a positive thing. And mm-hmm. I think it's it, there was it was a big miss. I'm sure if I had been practicing in the U.S., I would have had a very different response from my teachers. But it was, you know, it's also different. Like they're you only, they're only seeing you every like three or four days, so you're basically isolated. I was practicing in this little hut that was, um, you know, in the middle of the forest, and it was. Anyway, it w- I wasn't well supported. Let's put it that way. And then Saida Upandita, my teacher, wasn't even in town. Like he was, he's like he was at that time very famous. He was traveling around the world. He would come back every few months, and so I would have different teachers, and they were all not really tracking my practice. So it was, it wasn't ideal conditions. So when you say you fell apart, what did that look like? Um, I stopped. It was suddenly like this huge set of emotions that I'd probably been repressing to a certain degree just kind of overwhelmed me. And I was I was lost in grief and a sense of failure. And I suddenly couldn't meditate. It was really interesting. It was like I wasn't I couldn't even be mindful for one second. Mm. I would just my mind was so chaotic. So going from so you have to imagine, right? It's it was at that point about six months of meditation and my mind was so precise and sharp and concentrated up until this point because I'd been meditating so thoroughly. And then I hit this moment and it was like I couldn't meditate. And I thought, what's wrong with me? And then this like shame and self-hatred and all of this stuff I was just flooded with. And it was awful. And there was no psychological support, right? I'm in the middle of this country with like kind of Stone Age psychology, right? You know, and I won't say that about the whole country, but at least in this monastery. And so I just kind of like cried and was miserable and decided, okay, now I'm leaving. That's it. What am I going to do? I'm going to go to the, I'll go, I'll go to Thailand now and go to the beach. And so I went, so after several weeks of that, I went to see Upandita and I said, you know, I'm leaving. And he said, fine, leave. And then he goes, but if you do, the afflictions of the mind will overwhelm you. And he said that, and I was like, oh, right, wherever you go, there you are. Mm. So I I went back to my room, and I just sort of, like, something shifted. There was something that happened in that interaction with him, and I decided that I would stay. And I would... Um, But I knew that if I was going to stay, I was going to have to practice in an entirely different way. And there was what was really – okay, so so I had been practicing like hardcore Mahasi style. I know you've talked about that on other podcasts, but with this this noting practice, right, where you have to be mindful every every single moment. Sorry, I knocked my uh, drinking – my water bottle. Sorry, go ahead. Noting practice. Right. I do this. This yeah. is the one of the styles of practices I do, where it's everything that comes up, hearing, smelling, seeing, thinking, you make a soft little mental note in your mind. And it can get, I can only, I mean, after a couple of days of doing this, the mind can get very sharp. I can only imagine after six months. Oh, you could, yeah, exactly. Your mind is just like a laser, right? Um so I was doing that. You know, he would be like, okay, did you wake up on the in-breath or the out-breath? Wow. Yeah, you were having to like know it with that granularity. And so it's like it's a profound and amazing practice. But it's very, very goal-driven, as you can could hear from my story. And it's also um, 
it's like a lot of effort. I mean, you're making so much effort and you can get to these places where it seems like the effort relaxes, but you're you're really working hard. So in so as I'm planning to leave or right around that time, there was a li- there was a quote-unquote library in the monastery which was basically a book sh- a bookcase with all these books by Mahasi Sayada. Who was uh, Upandita's predecessor, who who really popularized this noting practice. Exactly. And he um, – and there was one book on the shelf, which was not Mahasi, and it was um, the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying by Sogyal Rinpoche, which um, – and just to say, I know Sogyal Rinpoche is a controversial figure, and that book is quite an amazing book. So I um, – I said, can I read that book? And they said, no, because it's not by Mahasi Sayada. And I said, I'm leaving or I'm planning to leave. Can I just read the book? And they said, okay, you can read the book. So I got the book and um, and I opened it up. And the book is uh, – it, it's written from the perspective of Tibetan Buddhist teachings, which are really quite different in a lot of ways from these Southeast Asian teachings that I was interested – that I had been practicing but much of it is, that was that spoke to me was this this totally different approach, which is that there's nothing to get, there's nowhere to go. The mind is inherently um, primordially here, present as it is. That there's there's a goodness, an inherent goodness in us, and that grasping after some kind of awakening is like a it's like a mistake. Like you like you you're not recognizing the goodness inside you. And I read that, and I was like, "Oh my God, what have I been doing?" And now, now I want to say, and this gets later to you know how things have evolved with my thinking about meditation. But it was this corrective, you know, it was this major corrective to striving, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't. Um, it's not like one is better than the other. They're just different ways of practicing. And but it, I needed that mm-hmm. at that moment, and. Then in the book, it was filled with all these compassion practices and then also the practice, of, the Tibetan practice of Dzogchen, right, which is more about resting one's mind in its true nature. And so I started practicing from the book and it was as though everything began to shift. I started doing compassion practices all day long and then resting my mind. Did you get in trouble for this? I didn't recorded. tell them I was okay. doing it. <laughs> I would do like five minutes of of the insight meditation practice before I would go into my interview and report that. But then they saw this change in me because suddenly there was I would they knew how miserable I was and I was like happy and joyful and connected and rest and and it was like boom. So you got to imagine that you have a concentrated mind and then six months of concentration and then you're dropping in this like profound letting go practice and resting the mind and recognizing the inherent awareness that's existing in every moment, right? And so so my mind just dropped and it was like oh, – sorry, dropped means nothing. But it, it, it just opened to this state of like profound well-being and connection and awareness of awareness itself. And that's where it's then began to stay for, you know, in and out, but for the next three or four months. And I want to keep going with this, but you yeah. brought up some concepts that I think are worth unpacking. Mm-hmm. And this all, of course, plays right into your new book. Um, awareness of awareness. Unpack that. Okay. So, aware, so when we meditate, we can be aware of, 
what we call objects of meditation. Objects of meditation is our breath and our body sensations, thoughts, emotions. Those are what we call objects of awareness. Another object of awareness that we don't typically pay attention to, especially when people are starting out meditation, is that which is the awareness itself, that which is noticing everything. And um, and and so you can turn your attention to it. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it be really specific. Like there are three ways that I've noticed with students and with myself that people tend to observe awareness. They have awareness of awareness. And one is the awareness of that in which everything is contained. So the metaphor here would be our minds are like the sky. The, the awareness is vast and open and spacious. And all the thoughts are like clouds. You've heard this before, passing by. But so the in, instruction in meditation for awareness of awareness is to notice the sky instead of the clouds, mm-hmm. right? And so it can feel like I'm noticing the vast space in which everything is arising. How do you do that, though? It's easy. I mean, it's not easy, easy, but it's like if I said it, if you were meditating and I just said now to start to notice the sky, like you could turn your attention to the, to the, the here, we could, I mean, we can try it let's if you want. Yeah. Um, okay. So here, let's just do it with, with space in general. So, so just taking a moment to, to connect with your body and just being present and the listeners can do that as well. If you're driving, be careful. Yeah, exactly. And um, let's start by just expanding a bit. So let's open um, our attention to sound. So notice the sounds around you, and really let your let the sounds um, tune into the sounds of the furthest away sound that you can possibly hear. And then noticing your body as if your body, you can notice the back of your body and let your attention go to the back of your body. And then imagine that you could feel out of your body around into this, into the space around your body. So just breathing and sensing and letting your body have a sense of expansiveness. And then include the, um, include the sounds too. And then if you really want to expand, you could open your eyes and just take in the, see see if you can look kind of peripherally, like opening peripherally. And just really relax and soften. And as you're doing this, and if your eyes are open, you might notice the space in between things instead of the things themselves. And just let yourself rest here and just remind you that our minds are like the sky. Our awareness is like the sky, vast, open, spacious. And all that's arising is just like clouds in the sky. We can just rest here. And probably should stop because mm-hmm. we're in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> but. The, the one, uh, the way that 
you've mentioned Joseph Goldstein, who's uh, my teacher. The way he gets his students, or one of the ways he gets his students to tune into awareness of awareness, is to just ask yourself silently a question, what is knowing? Sort of like, I'm hearing noises. What is knowing these noises? Who is knowing these noises? And then you start kind of gently looking for the knower. Of course, you're not going to find it. And the idea is that in the not finding, something important happens, which is you just you see that there's a kind of a in a positive sense, like an emptiness there. And that's thrilling. And like you for me, in my experience, you look and it's like right there. You don't have to look too hard. You just notice right away. Yeah, I can't. I'm hearing a noise and I'm looking for what's uh, knowing it. And you might even layer on a question of like, and who's asking the question? And and it throws you very quickly if you practice it enough into a space of of it's a kind of a thrilling vertiginous feeling of wow there's really nobody home here and so I, this isn't emphasized in the beginning I know this is actually the, your point this is this idea of natural awareness which you've written a book about and uh, or a, awareness of awareness isn't emphasized in most beginning meditation instructions. And yet it is very powerful and it can disentangle you from some of the sort of attacking the object like a rabid dog as, as actually has been instructed for in, by some teachers. You know what? You get on your breath like a rabid dog. You're going to be – you're going to own everything that arises. You're going to note everything that arises. You're going to be aware of whether you woke up on the in-breath or the out-breath. This is a much more relaxed practice and is – I agree with you. It's a corrective. You can skillfully switch between the two of them. Absolutely. So a couple of things in what you're saying that when we were talking about, you were saying, how do you notice awareness of awareness? So one of the ways is the one we just did, awareness that in which it's all contained. The second one is exactly what you were pointing to, that which knows. So it's the same practice that um, I'll teach students to, to kind of look at the knower, see if we can find the knower or the noticer. And then another way people notice awareness of awareness is it's sort of more like of an intuitive sense, like you're just here. You're just – awareness just is. Mm-hmm. It's like a sense of like presence that's – it's not going anywhere. It's here. And we can tune into that awareness that's existing. Like aware, we're, we're always aware. Like if I were to say to you, Dan, like for the next second, like don't be aware. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> try. You want to try? Okay. Everybody listening, try. Don't be aware. It's like when somebody says, don't think about a polar bear. Exactly. You can't. You, you can't. Um, I'll say there are three little phrases that I've picked up along the way, I think from Joseph. Mm-hmm. And you've already used one of them. That can – because I very much – I really resonated with your story about the striving. Because mm-hmm. um, I have – in my daily practice and on retreat, I often get to this point where I'm, I notice that there's a leaning forward quality to my practice. And – the one phrase I'll sometimes drop in just as if I – sensing that there's a, like a gritting of teeth happening mm-hmm. is just the word effortless. Mm-hmm. Just, oh, yeah. Like to know what's happening right now is absolutely effortless. This is – the knowing is happening without quote unquote me. The me is just another thing that is being known. It's just a – the sense I have of an inner Dan is just another appearance in consciousness. Right, which is some vast, mysterious, selfless thing that is worthy of investigation. The other little phrase is: you, this is the one you use. Nowhere to go, nothing to do. 
you know, or nothing to get. Um, and just to remember that, like I, I am trying to, to notice, I'm, I am actually trying to get something here. But what's the <laughs> that, that's not your job in meditation, right? Yeah. It's actually there's a there's a settling back that can happen. Yeah. And then the third one is, uh, I've forgotten what the third one is. <laughs> It'll come to me during the course of this conversation. But these phrases are incredibly yeah. useful for me. And I think drive at what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. And this is this is kind of how I've developed some of the teachings in the book. I call them glimpse practices. And what it is, it's for you to do at any moment, either in your meditation practice or in your day, to help turn your mind in the direction of a more open, spacious awareness. And so one of the – so you've already mentioned several that I invite people to do just to – Really? Oh, I'm yeah. cribbing from your book. Yeah, yeah, you yes, did it. Okay. It's so, it. So it's like – it's like when you have a receptive mind, just drop into the mind um, some phrase that helps turn your attention to this 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 type of awareness, and it can be very powerful. Even just um, I, don't, I don't use it specifically the ones you said, but the fa- the idea of using a phrase of some sort, like we might say everything's happening on its own or something. Or one that I often have people do is just when their mind when you're meditating, just stop and say. Can I be with just this? And then we open to what just this is without resistance. And there's a dropping because really it's about letting go. Like it's a profound letting go that can happen when we're resting our awareness. We're not hooked onto anything, you know. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's all these little tools that you can use that I call glimpse practices to turn our mind there. And it's really helpful to have a meditation practice that you that helps you concentrate your mind and there's it's not like these are better than the other but we need them at different times like that's kind of the point of my book that we can have many different ways of practicing awareness i think what's happened sorry there's so many things to say here <laughs> i'm kind of getting too excited um me too i'm excited too and i love this stuff so but carry on um i think like in the mindfulness world and even the way that I was teaching for many, many years, there's an emphasis on focused awareness, right? On bring your attention to your breathing. When your attention wanders, bring it back. And this is a tremendously powerful practice. And this is so many of us, our minds are all over the place. This is a way of coming back into the present moment and teaching us the skill of being mindful. And then and then it doesn't stop there. I mean, as you know, most people like you learn to open to other things, to your thoughts and emotions and to keep coming back in the moment. This is the typical way that mindfulness has been taught. But there's this whole realm of other practices that is also part of mindfulness. It's just more of the expansive, spacious end of mindfulness practice. That's how I view it. And then it seems to me my own practice and then working with many, many students is that people go back and forth among all of them. So I call it a spectrum of awareness practices where you can go from very focused to wide open. And the analogy I often use is like if you have a camera, a camera can take a picture with a telephoto lens. It can take a regular old picture and it could take something with a panoramic lens. And if we're stuck over in one area, we're going to miss lots of ways of taking photographs. You know, so our meditation can get very narrow but it can be very skillful to open to this more spacious, relaxed side of practice. But so I, I totally agree, and I've seen this so much in my own practice and working with Joseph. The, the knowing there's a real art in sort of knowing 
when to switch, noticing if you're too fuzzed out and you need to go back to a concentration practice where you're just feeling your breath coming in and going out and every time you get distracted, starting again. Or if you're too locked in on the breath or you're too tight or over-efforting, noting, knowing, all right, I need to chill out for a second and do a more open practice. That, there's a real art to that, and having guidance from a teacher can be really useful, which is why I wonder what you would say to – I think a lot of my listeners struggle with the idea of, well, do I need a teacher? I don't have, a, I don't have access to a teacher locally. So then how do I know when to switch among these various practices? What would you say to those folks? Yeah, it's hard when people are remote and don't have access to a teacher. So partially the suggestion is to see if there are ways to get, gain access, like go on a meditation retreat or find a way you know, remotely to work with people through programs and stuff because that is hard. But if you don't have access, I think ultimately we become our own best teacher. And you start to, you have to experiment quite a bit. Like if I try this, then my mind feels too tight, but I've learned this other type of practice. Maybe I'll try this right now and see what happens. And then they do that and, oh, okay, this is beneficial. This is working for me. I'm feeling more connected. I'm feeling more spacious. Uh Uh-oh, my mind is wandering all over the place. Let me come back into the present moment with a more focused attention. So it's a lot of trial and error when you don't have somebody who you can just keep asking questions um, about. Um, I don't have a great answer for when people don't have access to a teacher because I think that, like I said, in the long run down the road, people become their own best teachers, and this is really important. But you always have to have somebody that you can get some guidance from. One thing I would recommend for if if you're a listener and you subscribe to the 10% Happier app, which, by the way, is by no means compulsory if you're a listener. But if you happen to be a subscriber, we have this function that I think is vastly underutilized. The people who use it absolutely love it. They're our most dedicated users. I think I think there's correlation causation question there. But, but uh, the, the coaching function. So we have these highly trained, very experienced coaches who you can text with. And it's asynchronous. And they're going to get back to you right away. But they're going to back, get back to you quickly and thoughtfully. And you can ask an infinite number of questions. There's no limit. And these people care. They love their – I know these coaches. They love to talk to people about their meditation practice. And these are the folks that you can get in touch with and ask any question at any time. And I really think that would be a, a way – a workaround if you live in a place where you don't have access to a teacher and don't have the means or the time to go on a meditation retreat. This would be a way to do it. I think it's a great solution and it's amazing that you offer that because not everybody does. Yeah. And I, you know, one of the frustrations of, for me, speaking personally, of having the app is that we have these coaches and people, people do use them. I've been number, thousands of our users use the coaches, but not everybody. And I feel like this is an amazing resource uh, that more people should use. Um, I remembered the phrase. The phrase is, I believe the way teachers teach the phrase is, it's already here. Mm-hmm. meaning w- awareness is already here. So you're striving to make sure you catch every fluctuation in your belly on every breath, et cetera, et cetera. But like the awareness is already here. You don't need to force it because it you're all you're aware all the time. Um, I misheard that as it's all right here, um, <laughs> but that both work, you know, like it's everything that's arising in your mind. It's mm-hmm. all right here. You don't have to be looking for the next thing or ruminating about the past thing it's like it's all right here there's a just it's just this incredible 
sort of undulating sea of 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 objects right here right now mm-hmm. and that's a great reminder for me when i'm gritting my teeth and trying to win at meditation that's great yeah so so i love these kinds of phrases that we can turn our mind towards some more a more spacious relaxed awareness and that's really what you're doing and you and they're, and they're used skillfully they're used at times when you need them and it, so if our mind is kind of spacey and foggy and using something like that may not make the most sense. It may be at that point that you want to just really get a little bit more concentrated with your attention. So it's, um, it's an art. It's a real, it's a, it's an art of meditation, but if you like it, it's kind of like, it's a really fun way to spend your time. Just out of curiosity, what happened at the end of your retreat? Oh, right. Okay. So, um, so I spent the next three or four months practicing in this new way, um, doing a lot of compassion practices. And, and you know, the, the thing that I realized, right, the thing that, that was became so obvious to me once I shifted the way I was practicing was that this whole drive that I had to reach enlightenment or, you know, some kind of goal, it was, it was because I didn't like myself. You know, mm. it was because I thought that if I could become enlightened, then I would be always kind, then I would be loving, then I would be a good person. And what I realized that was so like so incredibly powerful was that, oh, actually, what I had to do was learn to just be okay with myself as I was, right? And so that the practice was not about getting out. It was about a deep embodiment, a going inward and becoming more and more myself and and accepting that. And and then the more loving and accepting that I could be, the more my mind and my meditation practice began to come back to life and to have this sense of like this tremendous like wonder and awe and connection. And it started to be more like that very long ago experience that I talked about when I was a child where there was these, these deep moments of love and compassion. So, so I, um, the last few months of that retreat were extraordinary, and I was having a wonderful time um, practicing and mostly practicing in this way. And they, then I finally was like, oh, I've been here a long time. I need to go. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I would just I, – I got to a point where I was I – was, I felt done, you know, and, and pretty complete there. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. 
credits stop if you cancel or change plans. In your bio, it says that one of the most challenging practices for you now is mindfully parenting a nine-year-old. She's, she's nine, she's yeah. Nine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I know this is a subject of great fascination for our listeners. What What is the challenge for you? in parenting as a meditation teacher? <laughs> um, you know, there's always a different one every day. Um, actually, it's, it, you know, I think as parents, and you're probably experiencing this, you go through phases. Sometimes it's easier. Sometimes it's harder. And uh, right now, I feel like things are easy, but she's slowly approaching tweendom. So I know it's coming. But, um, but for me, I would say... Partially, the practice is about staying, like, you know, regulation of my emotions and when I get irritated or frustrated or, you know, and I'm trying to get her to bed and, oh, no, no, just five more minutes, just five more minutes, you know, and she, and it, like, the the staying centered and not going into mean mommy and being loving even when I don't feel compassionate. And, you know, those are kind of like that that aspect of practice is really important for me. Um, I mean, you can see it. You can notice right there, mean mommy is a story you're telling yourself. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, that's true. That is true. And I think, that, you know, I mean, but I think there are more like there are less skillful and more skillful ways of responding to our children. And I feel like because of my practice, I have this easy connection back into myself so that when I like, you know, just like, like really stupid things. But like the other day I was working on a puzzle with her and I had, it was a big puzzle. We're really into these like 500 piece puzzles. And I had spent 20 minutes separating out one area from another area. And she kind of, she was, I was sort of into it more than she was. (laughs) (laughs) She comes back in the room and she's like, oh, oh, let me help. And she takes the one of the boxes of puzzle pieces and dumps it into the other one. And so completely messes up the everything I'd spent the last half an hour doing. And I was, I could just feel, I mean, it, it was so trivial and so annoying. And I just could feel the rage coming into me like, what? I just did this, this thing. You messed it up. And I could, you know, and I knew, and there was like this little tiny voice and like, it's not a big deal, right? It's just a puzzle. And I could feel it like coming through my body. And and I mean, because of my practice, I had a reaction. You know, I wanted to, I, I, I got, I was like, Mira, why did you do this? And then I just went, wait. And I paused and I felt in my body and I just practiced what I know to do. And I calmed down within a few, you know, a few seconds or whatever and could be more loving. And we just laughed about it because it was absurd. Well, wait, I would let, this is a great example. Um, Walk us. I know for you, you said I practiced what I know to do. Mm-hmm. I know for you, you know it, so it's in your molecules. Can you get super granular about what the steps are in a moment like that? Because I think a lot of us could use the basic blocking and tackling. <laughs> okay. Um, well, so so it, you're right. It is happening somewhat intuitively, but I. I think the first thing I did was there was like I was I had my reaction like that did not stop you know I mean we sometimes people think when you practice a lot you're going to not react which sometimes happens but oftentimes there is a reaction and I was like I could so the irritation and the 
I got really mad. It was kind of super stupid, right? I mean, it was it was a no, puzzle. No judgment here. Okay, so I, so you were just turning your Type A powers onto your puzzles. There that's, you go. That's it. That's a good outlet. Okay, so um, my I could feel the the what was happening in my belly, and it was like this real this strong sense of like burning, and I could feel it in my chest, and I just I just turn my attention immediately inward to the sensations. And then I practiced breathing as well, like in a, just a very simple way, just allowing that to calm down. I recognized that I was right there in the midst of the emotion. And I, and, and then it just sort of, it just kind of began to calm. So it's really, you know, sometimes we teach students to practice stop. Like that's a, that's a great acronym when we're stressed out. And it's great for parents because it only takes like, 10 seconds or even less to do like and stop is stop take a breath observe and proceed so so and that's essentially what I was doing but mine it was a little more organic but I stopped I took a breath and then I observed what was happening internally and and it's really this the, the thing that's so important with the emotions is if we start trying to observe the thinking mind and the figuring out mind oh no I think I'm really mad and I, I'm so it, it it doesn't we get lost but if we can come into our body and just feel what's happening in the moment, my heart is racing, my stomach is clenched, my jaw is tight, there's a relaxing that can occur, there's a there's a re-regulating of our nervous systems that can happen. And so it's it can be – that was really what was happening. I was stopping. And so by the time I got to the P, stop, take a breath, observe, proceed, I was pretty relaxed. I, mean, I wouldn't say very relaxed, but I was I, – I had, I had regulated essentially – and so I like – so that's – I mean, you know, we have all these acronyms. Like I'm sure you've talked to here about RAIN, mm-hmm. right? The recognize, allow, investigate, and not identify with. That's it, All of that is happening quickly when we're in the, in the heat of the moment. But so let me just go back. Stop, I get. Take a breath, I get. Observe. Mm-hmm. You see, you, you observe what's happening in your mind and body, like uh, I'm having self-righteous thoughts or I'm, you know, my chest is buzzing. What is it about the observing that allows you to proceed sanely? I think it's a combo of the breathing, the, the breath that, that calms us a little bit. And then there's, well, it's, I mean, it's it's interesting. There's this research study that I think is really powerful, which was done by David Creswell a number of years ago um, when he was at UCLA, where he had people see see faces on a screen while their brains were being scanned, right? And so they wanted to see what brain activity was happening. And so what he saw was that. So he would flash these these um, images of people who were scared, who were disgusted, who were angry. And then what people had to do was label. They had to be mindful of their emotion. So they had to label that emotion that was they were seeing on the screen, fear, disgust. And then they were seeing what happened in the brain. So when the person was, um, was activated, their, their amygdala lit up. So the amygdala is, that, um, the, is what we think of as the primitive part of our brain. It's that small almond-shaped piece way, way in the center of the brain. And it starts to be, be activated. When people correctly labeled the emotion, the prefrontal cortex came online and it calmed the amygdala down is what the science showed. 
right? So, so, it, so the prefrontal cortex, it's like the, what we think of as the CEO of our brain, right? It's responsible for executive functioning, for delayed gratification, working memory, flexible thinking, uh, impulse control. And so it seems like the awareness factor impacts that kind of reactivity. Like that's what that, that study was showing. Now, it's been replicated a little bit, so it's not like definitive here, but but that might be one answer to the question, like what happens when you bring awareness to to what's happening in the moment? Definitely overcomplicating just being with a puzzle. But <laughs> Podcasts are natural zones for overcomplication. Okay. You're, in a, you're, in a, you're in a congenial spot for overcomplication. Okay. I'm just trying to think about that. I mean, I think on, on the one hand, I remember I had an aunt say to, or an aunt say to me once um, – she said she was skeptical about mindfulness. She said, I know when I'm mad. And I didn't quite know how to respond mm. to that. I think I think the answer is that if you're observing mindfully, you know that you know you're mad. In other words, it's a meta-awareness, a metacognition that says that, – that allows you to kind of keep the emotion at – a distance, not in a dissociative way, but actually in a kind of intimate way where you're like, oh, yeah, this is what anger is really like. It's the roiling of the stomach. It's the the, the, the all of these angry thoughts. The My ears are turning red. You're kind of snuggling up in the thing as opposed to running from it. But the doing of that, while it feels terrible, allows you not to be so owned by it and so and react blindly to it. Is what is the foregoing accurate in your view? I think that makes a lot of sense to me. And and it's that extra piece that your aunt probably doesn't have, which is, and you're pointing to it, the, the non-identification part. Like when we can be present with it and it moves from like, like anger is like I'm overtaken by anger, my anger into, oh, there's anger in me. Like anger is moving through me. There's more space. There's more, there's, it, it goes from being my anger to the anger. And that's a very powerful shift. And if we can be mindful, if we can just be mindful of it, even even for like one second, there's a little bit more freedom. Is, is what is what I've explored in myself and with students. So it's it's um, one of um, there's one teacher who used to refer to it as disentangled participation. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Isn't that a great phrase? I love that. So it's not like we're dissociating, like, oh, I am angry, right? It's not that. We're, we're really fully in it, but with this measure of self-awareness that I think doesn't happen when you just, I'm angry, you know, you know you're angry. Disentangled participation. Mm-hmm. So if, uh, so the, there, there's a way to do stop, S-T-O-P, if your kid's freaking you out or anybody's pissing you off or whatever, mm-hmm. to, that's pretty simple, you know, just stopping, taking a breath, observing you can do that in a cursory way. Just observe that your body's, you know, having is adrenalized or whatever, and then proceed. Hopefully, with some degree of sanity that you might not otherwise have had. But then there's the next level uh, where the O of, of stop, where the observing has some of the N from rain, which is non-identification, where you can see, oh yeah, this is just this is the impersonal. This is the wind. To, mm-hmm. to refer back to the eight worldly winds of anger. And I, it's blowing on me right now. It's blowing in me right now, but I don't necessarily have to be blown around by it. Yeah, that's great. That's a great analogy. So do you teach your – Mira, do you teach her how to meditate? <laughs> um, 
Yes, sort of. I mean, I do, but it's better if she learns it from someone else. Than say, okay, me. I'm so glad to hear you say this because at almost every speech I give, I go around and give a lot of speeches, mm-hmm. and there's uh, and on the good ones I get Q and A. In the bad ones, I don't have time for it. Bad. They're not bad. It's just I much prefer because I'm sick of hearing my own story. But I really love talking to people about this practice and um, taking their questions, even though it's dirty little secret. It's always the same questions. Um, <laughs> one of the five or six questions I always get is. You have a four-year-old. Do you teach him how to meditate? And my answer is – and I, I'm cutting you off, so I apologize because I actually want to hear what your answer is. Uh, I may, but I have the suspicion that it's going to be best if I model the meditative lifestyle, mindfulness, the dedication to the practice, and that he learns it from somebody else rather than me teaching it, which is going to come with a lot of annoying stuff. I thoroughly agree. I mean, we. my daughter has found the way to just perfectly make fun of what I do. I mean, she's like, she's like, she'll go, my name is Diana Winston, you know, like making fun of my meditation. And then she, and then my favorite was when she was little, I was like, you know, I was very enthusiastic. I'm going to teach her how to be, how to meditate. And so before we'd go to bed, I was like, oh, I'm going to bring her loving kindness practice. So we used to, this was like, she was like maybe three when this happened, maybe four. And so I said, and, and so I said, let's think of all the people we want to send kindness to. How about grandma? How about papa? How about, you know, so, and so, so I said, may you be happy, grandma. May you be happy, dad. And she goes, may you be happy, poop. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is not working. Nope. And, um, <laughs> and so then I realized that it was, I mean, my, one of my friends jokes and says she's going to be the anti-mindfulness prophet, you know, um, which may be true. But the, it, there was an interesting thing that happened recently. So you are asking about mindful parenting. And so I was sharing, we started, we got off on the whole thing about uh, the, the, you know, working with strong emotions. But one of the biggest areas for me with parenting is around my expectations of her and I want her to be a certain way. And so I'm like constant, you know, and it's just, it's like, I can't help it. You know, I, oh, I want her. I love to read. I want her to be a really big reader. I like the theater. How come she's not, you know, I never got to do dance when I was a kid. Why doesn't she become a dancer? You know, it's like these stories we have about our kids. And um, you're giving me this this look like, yeah, I know. (laughs) And, um, and I, and so my, one of my greatest practices, honestly, as a parent is the, is the like watching those arise and then the dropping them, letting them go, letting them go all as because they're constantly arising. You should be doing this. She should be eating less sugar. She should be, you know, I mean, obviously you parent your child and you keep them away from harm and so forth, but, but the expectations and, and then the coming back into the reality of who they are and letting them be who they are. So so I had this big insight into that actually on a meditation retreat and about how like the importance of that for letting my daughter be herself. And then I get back and she had created a meditation that she had done herself. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is really weird. But So you talked about her making fun of you. So I... My son, I, I I can't remember if I've told these stories on the on the show already, so I apologize to listeners if I already said this. But recently, I was giving him a hard time about something, and he looked at me, and said, "You know, your next book should be ten percent poopier." 
And then, and, and then the uh, then the other day we were at taking him. Uh, he's got a lot of these little comments. He, we were at a school carnival, and I was he was so tired, and we we're trying to convince him to leave, and I was carrying him from one ride to the next, and he's collapsed in my arms. And uh, I actually posted a picture of this moment that my wife took on Instagram, and he said, "I'm not tired." I'm just meditating. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> so, I mean, he's never meditated, but uh-huh. like, I, you know, he knows how to uh, um, use it against us for sure. Um, uh, one one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because you, you, you um, oh, I seem to have not brought this note, but I think I'll be able to um, to recreate it hopefully from memory. One of One of your jobs or your job right now is at the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, I believe you guys have done some work at looking at whether meditation works with kids. And I saw something about ADHD and teens and adults and uh, that was a study that was done through your center. Do you have recall of the results of that? Um yeah, so it's so our center is the Mindful Awareness Research Center, although I have to say we are more of an education center than a research center. But we've done about 15 different studies over the last decade on mindfulness. And the very first one when I got hired at UCLA was to um, teach on the mindfulness for ADHD for adolescents, an adult study that we did. And um, and it was it was it was very positive. I mean, the results were essentially like, yes. People with ADHD can meditate. Yes, there are significant improvements in, in in attention that they found, and particularly in what's called conflict attention. So there are three different types of attention orienting, and I forget the second, but the third one is conflict attention, and that's the ability to stay um, attentive to one thing when multiple things are distracting you. And so... And so that was the thing that improved the most in these in the kids and the adults. And I mean, it was very statistically significant, so much so that some scientists looked at the data and they said, "What medication did you put them on?" And wow. we said, "No, replace it with a T. It was meditation." Mm. But um, so that study again, not sure. I don't think it's been replicated, but that was kids and adults, and it was like an eight-week mindfulness program that we put them through. Is there other evidence? Because this is another question I get asked a lot. um, Is there other evidence to suggest that teaching kids meditation can have salutary effects? Um, Yes, there is. But I would say it's very, it's still early. Like the research on kids is early. The research with adults, there's a lot, but it's also really early. Um, But the kids, it's even smaller. And a lot of the research has been done around um, behavioral, like emotional regulation. There's been some on test-taking and mindfulness. There's some on social-emotional improvement. There's some on – trying to remember the research here. Most of it's done within the context of a classroom, and so – uh, it, there's a lot of, of like behavioral stuff that's positively impacted. So there's much to be done around the children's research, and it's all very like in a positive direction. Before we wrap this up, um, one of the things that I think we talked about doing in advance with you is taking fielding some calls from our listeners. Mm-hmm. You okay to do that? Yeah, we can do that. And um, is there anything else I should have asked you before we do uh-huh, that? Yes. There is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What is that? Um, 
Well, I just I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, about the center at UCLA yes. and then the um, the the work with the International Mindfulness Teachers Association. Go for it. Okay. So um, so we, I have a center at UCLA. It, it both is research and education, and we've been doing um, we've been programs and classes for the greater Los Angeles area and and I've both, spoken there. And yes, you have spoken. That was great to have you. And also a lot were really embedded within the university as well. So we're in the medical school in the psychiatry department, but we have a reach throughout campus. And so um, we have free meditations for UCLA students all the time. They can come meditate. They can take anything we offer for free. And we teach these classes called MAPS classes, which are mindful awareness practices. They're six-week programs learning mindfulness and we offer day-longs and events. There's a lot going on. It's just been it's been this incredible gift to be able to share mindfulness in this context, really in a very um, uh, thoroughly secular and um, accessible to anyone of any background. And one of the things that I've been doing for a long time is the is teaching um, teachers, training mindfulness facilitators. So 10 years ago, I started training people how to teach mindfulness within whatever their context is. So what are the communities that they serve and how can they best embody the mindfulness practice to go out into the into their communities and teach. And I mean, this so, is, I'm sorry to interrupt you because sure. I just want to put a, a, I want to amplify this point. This is a huge issue. We have a supply and demand issue in the mindfulness business, mm-hmm. which is that we have a lot of demand for meditation and not a huge supply of trained teachers. That's right. And in order to be a trained teacher, you got a really deep, deep teacher. You got to do stuff like you did in your 20s, shave your head and go off and be a nun or a monk. You don't have to, but I mean, the people, the, the, Grandmothers and grandfathers of 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 the uh, the people we respect the most in the meditation world have gone off and done a lot of work on silent retreat, whether you go to Asia or not. They've just done a lot of work with their minds, and so I'm not saying every teacher has to do that in order to be sort of garden variety teacher or to teach you know little kids how to do it. You can do vastly less, but but the 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 supply is very limited at the high end there of, or the deep end of people who can really – who have spent a lot of time on retreat. And so we're, you know, the pipeline is being filled slowly over time of a younger generation. But we need also people who, who – and this is where your work is so important – where you can train people to go teach uh, you know, their platoon in the army or teach uh, uh, their kids at school or teach in their office, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think what you're doing is really important. Thank you. Yeah, it's a huge issue, what you're saying, the supply and demand issue. And then also the fact that because up until recently, it's been like entirely unregulated. So so anybody can say that they're a mindfulness teacher. You know, you can take a weekend workshop and say that you're a mindfulness teacher because who's going to stop you from that? And so that's been a really important focus of a number of years of my work. Of I've been developing the International Mindfulness Teachers Association that went live about a year ago, and it's a um, it is a cre- accreditation board and um, it accredits teacher training programs in mindfulness, mindfulness teacher training programs, and then it gives a credential to individuals who've gone through those training programs, so you can have it for your professional use. And it's also a membership organization. So if you are a mindfulness teacher, you can join and then there's various benefits, including webinars and conferences and ways of, you know, building community around mindfulness practice. And this is just so important to 
so that the you know the quality of the teachers is really really significant because if you're learning mindfulness from someone who's who's not that qualified probably you're not going to get hurt but it's um it may not go very far and um so anyway that's a project that I've been involved with for a number of years and it's been great to do anything else i missed um well, probably, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, let's do some voicemails. We got to put our headphones on. Okay. Um, can we hear? Let's see. Can we? Can you hear me as I talk? Okay. Mm-hmm. We our headphones work, and Susie's going to play voicemail number one. Hi, Dan. This is Amy calling from Washington D.C. Uh, first, I wanted to say thanks for your New Year's challenge. I have for a very long time listened to your podcast, read lots of books about meditation, but never actually meditated. And it wasn't until I did the challenge and completed it that I actually did it for all of those days in a row. And it was great. Of course, I haven't done it since then, but um, but I know that I can do it now. And so um, that really meant a lot. So thank you for that. My question comes from that experience. Um, toward the end of the challenge, it was a session with Joseph um, about emotions. And um, I found during that session that I was overcome by emotion. I actually cried the entire time that he spoke, um, but through his um, guidance, I was able to watch myself and step back from it and just let it happen. It was a really cool experience. But what I started to wonder was how that would apply in the everyday. Um, It seems to me that emotions are a part of what make us human and make us unique, and if what I'm supposed to learn is how to remove myself from them and just observe my emotions, that maybe I'd become uh, detached or or emotionless and really just not fully feeling my life as I live it. So my question is more of a request. Could you talk more about that and and how how to balance that, uh, learning how to observe your emotions but really still living your life and feeling happy, feeling sad, but just not being carried away with those emotions. Thanks so much, Dan. I appreciate all that you do. Bye-bye. We actually kind of already talked about this, but I think it's worth, because it is a huge issue, so I'll let you hold forth. Yeah, and um, I do feel like we answered it quite a bit, and I, I think that um, it's it just just to be really clear, it's practicing mindfulness is not to turn you into a zombie. I mean, we're not trying to make you be emotionless. It's um, what I've found is that actually people have more access to their emotions and, but in a way that's a healthy way, instead of like one in which you're lost in it and feeling overwhelmed and out of it's out of control or I'll never get through this, which is what we talked about this identification Um we can be mindful of our emotions, which means not dissociated, not turning into a zombie, allowing them to move through us, but yet feeling them at the same time, right? So feeling it, but feeling it with awareness. So there's there's a beautiful, that was when we go back to the disentangled participation. Um, it's a beautiful approach to emotions that's totally doable for people. And it's such an important thing to understand because people often get stuck on um you know this kind of idea of dissociation becoming a zombie, but that is not what we're talking about. It's a, as Ram Das has said, you become a connoisseur of your neuroses. <laughs> yes, um, and you uh, you can handle them with much more lightness. Um, all right, Susie, let's do number two. 
Hey Dan, this is uh, Ram, and I have been listening uh, to your podcast and have also taken your challenge. Uh, it's great that uh, you are doing all these great things uh, about uh, meditation, and uh, also you know we are of uh, of uh, similar age, so I can relate to you than some of the gurus uh, that uh, are there on the show. And uh, having said that, my actually question today is that. I know we are supposed to focus on the breath and what I do almost subconsciously it's easier for me if I control the breath like for example I would just breathe and okay this is breathe in breathe out but I believe we are supposed to observe the breath that already happens meaning we don't cause the breath to happen <laughs> so it's almost but what I find is if I like it is almost difficult for me to figure out the natural breath going on it's much easier if i just breathe and is it okay first to do it that way and if not do you have tips uh, that i could use to observe the natural breath that is going on thank you again for the great things you are doing and you know good luck and uh, also have a great day bye <laughs> <laughs> so many well wishes at the end um what's your answer to that question So first of all there's many different types of meditation right and me- like there there's so many different meditation techniques I I always think of meditation like sports big category there's hundreds of sports there's many 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 types of meditation and so there are meditation practices where you deliberately control the breath and some of you've gone to yoga classes and you'll do that ujjayi breathing or something where you breathe in in a certain way um in this particular practice that i think we're teaching on the um on the app it's the emphasis on letting the breath be at its own natural rhythm and for some people that's hard to do because what i've noticed is that when for some people they try to pay attention to the breath and they start to control the breath so there's a couple of things you can try one is try meditating lying down because oftentimes our breath is very natural and then it's easier just to tune into the that breath when it's when it's um kind of when there's not a lot of tension in your body so you can try that try exploring different places to notice your breathing so you notice your breath at your abdomen you can try at your chest you can try at your nose because um maybe that one of those areas there's less trying to control it and it's more natural and then the third thing is you don't have to do your breathing as your main focus as your anchor of meditation you can do something else um like listening to sounds is a great one that people often do and it's a good one to do if you're you know if you're sick if you, it's hard to be with your breath or for some people because of past trauma or something being in their bodies is hard but listening to sounds just letting the sounds come and go is a very powerful practice so i would try a couple of those things see what happens yeah and also there's loving kindness practices you know if they're not too ooey gooey for you but and they and they were for me for a while but i do them all the time so there are lots of ways to practice and if you're getting hung up on your breath there are alternatives there's noting yeah, yeah lots exactly lots to do um before we go let's do what i call the plug zone can you just plug your book your books plural um uh, tell us where we can find you on the internet uh, tell us about where we can learn more about your center at UCLA etc cetera, etc cetera. okay so um I have a website dianawinston.com and my books um my most recent book is called is called The Little Book of Being Practices and Guidance for Uncovering Your Natural Awareness that just came out in March 
It's available wherever books are sold. Um, and it's, uh, and if you're interested in sort of what we were talking about during the first part of the podcast, that the natural awareness of practicing in a way that has more spaciousness and less effort, that, that's what that book is about. Um, I have another book called Fully Present, The Science, Art, and Practice of Mindfulness that I co-wrote with a scientist. So that has a lot of the practicalities and the science of mindfulness. And my very first book I wrote a long time ago was called Wide Awake, A Buddhist Guide for Teens. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Um, and then my center at UCLA, the Mindful Awareness Research Center, the website is uclahealth.org slash M-A-R-C, Mindful Awareness Research Center. And then if you're interested in joining um, or getting accredited or credentialed by the International Mindfulness Teachers Association, it's imta.org. I think that's great. It. Great work on this. Really appreciate it. And also, if you want to learn or get more content from Diana Winston, check out the 10% Happier app. All right. That's a good one, too. And you can hear the voice that um, uh, her daughter makes fun of her for. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for coming on. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's been really fun. She really does have a great voice. You can tell why. Our users love her so much. Uh, thanks again to Diana Winston. Thanks to you for listening. Uh, no voicemails, of course, this week because we just did them with Diana. Uh, but we'll be back next week with a next, another episode. Just as always, really like to thank our podcast insiders group, the folks who volunteer to, to give us feedback on every episode. It comes directly to me, and I really, really appreciate it. We, it, it has a big effect on the work we're doing here. And uh, I want to thank the team that produces the show, Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Mike D's on the board today. Thank you, Mike. Um, and we'll see you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey once upon a beat remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold and now when you read them as an adult you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin we have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Yeah. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. 
Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.